Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different. And today we have a very special reissue episode with one of the most inspiring people I've ever met, Dr. Sean Stevenson, the three-foot giant. Dr. Sean passed away on August 28th, 2019, following an accident. And uh, shortly after he died, um, I re-listened to this episode I thought it was powerful when we had the conversation. I re-listened to it when it first came out, and then I re-listened to it again. And it's even more powerful, um, given that Sean is no longer with us. Sorry, this one's tough. He was an amazing guy, and his, uh, his loss was a shock to uh, everybody that he touched. You see, Dr. Sean was predicted not to survive at birth because he has a very rare bone disorder called osteogenesis imperfecta. And that disorder, OI for short, uh, stunts your growth and uh, causes your bones to be extremely fragile. And um, that's why Dr. Sean was about three feet tall. And, um, and, he, uh, and he, he got around in a wheelchair. Um, during his life, his bones were fractured over 200 times by the time, by the time he was 18. But none of that stopped Dr. Sean. His life is a study in legendary. It's a study in full self-expression. His life is a testament, an inspiring and instructive example of how when there, there isn't a logical, obvious place for you in the world, you can make your place in the world. He's also an extraordinary example of how um, you can take what most people would call a disadvantage and transform it into an unfair competitive advantage. And he's also, frankly, one of the greatest examples of life design. This was a guy who created the life that he wanted for himself, and he made a gigantic difference in the world. And I'll tell you, he had a shit ton of fun doing it. Dr. Sean dealt with some uh, heavy stuff personally and helped people in his work transform their own insecurities and their own fears. But he did it with, with a smile and with fun. And you're going to hear him laugh and you're going to hear him talk about why he uh, liked to wink at himself. I'm sorry. Why he liked to wink at himself in the mirror and, um, and why he, uh, lived such a life of extraordinarily extraordinary service. And I think this conversation's going to be even more powerful after his passing. His life was way too short, and he accomplished extraordinary things, including working for a president, sharing the stage with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and Oprah Winfrey too. Dr. Sean was truly one of the greatest public speakers of all time, as well as being a best-selling author of a great book called Get Off Your Butt, How to End Self-Sabotage and Stand Up for Yourself. Um, also, you should know that because of Dr. Sean's condition, um, he was only able to get basic health care in the United States, and he was not able to get uh, life insurance. And so some friends of his and his wife, Mindy, have uh, put together a GoFundMe page so if you go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode or look for the show notes in your uh, podcast app, you'll see a click through there, a link 
to um, the GoFundMe page set up if you want to uh, if you want to put some money uh, into supporting his family, uh, as I have done, as Hal Elrod has done. I met Dr. Sean through um, Hal Elrod and John Berghoff. Uh, and John Vroman and that incredible crew. And so if you want to make a contribution to Mindy and their family, sorry, you can do that. Um, you can do that when you check out the show notes. Now, this episode is brought to you interruption free from NetSuite and Splunk. Now, as Joy Ramon would say, hey ho, let's go. I'm a very black or white guy. I think People see me on stage or they see my online videos. They, they make all kinds of assumptions about who I am, and uh, they're often incorrect. Uh, I am a very black or white guy. I'm either going to read a couple hundred books in a year or I'm not going to read any books in a year. I'm, <laughs> I'm either going to work out every single day in the month or I'm not going to work out, out at all. And I, uh, I'm very envious of... Uh, people like my wife who are very much gray. They're in the middle. Uh, she can do the same thing uh, consistently with ease. It really troubles my brain to have that level of discipline. I am I'm a sprinter by nature. If you need somebody to get something done uh, under a horrible, painful time limit that they will be shot and killed if they don't do it. I'm your guy. Uh, <laughs> but if you need some, if you need somebody who is going to pace something out naturally and responsibly, do not call me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I, that... I think it's only been just as of recent that I've decided to out my true, uh, self words and all. I think, uh, I've kind of hid that over the years because I felt like if people knew that about me, they wouldn't respect me. And I'm finding out the opposite is true. The more honest I am, the closer people are becoming to me. Now, that's interesting that you say that because having met you and kind of seen you do your thing in front of an audience and seen seen you be the center of attention, you exude a certain uh, don't give a fuckness about what every what anybody might think about me. Attitude. That was fostered. That was just been fostered in the last couple of years. Uh, that that wasn't my last twenty four years of my career. It was only probably the last couple of years. And uh, marrying my wife had a lot to do with that. Uh, she's really she's a renegade. She's she's somebody that's uh, self driven. She doesn't need validation at all. In fact. Uh, a whole year could go by, and if I didn't tell her she was beautiful, she wouldn't even care. Uh, and that just doesn't register on her scale of importance. Whereas uh, I'm somebody that I I love to hear from my wife what she adores about me, what she admires about me. I enjoy that verbal praise and that that uh, validation. Um, so, but as as of recent, I'd say the last couple of years, I've really stepped into more. Uh, exuding my true self, uh, not needing the validation of the world. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think the human beings, no matter who they are, there's somebody out there that they want to either impress or to get the approval of or to get the, uh, the acknowledgement from. I don't care how hardcore the person looks. There's usually somebody, and it may only just be their spouse. Yeah. We all want at least one person to love and accept us, right? <laughs> exactly. And it's not going to be us. We got to find it somewhere else. Someone else at least. Uh, but you found that you have come on that more recently. Yeah, I would say uh, 
you know, like I, to give you a little personal background, uh, I was in business with my family, my, specifically my father, for many years, a good 22 years. And I lived at home until I was 31. And having a severe physical disability like mine, uh, my family and I were very close. And uh, that was wonderful growing up. But, but as I got older, it was challenging because, you know, living at home until you're 31, you, you're always in groupthink. You're always thinking about like, okay, so is mom and dad going to approve of what I'm saying here on the stage? Is mom and dad going to like what I say in this podcast? Um, and when I finally moved out of the house and then a few years later went through a very painful business breakup from my father, uh, that's when I really started to come into my own. And like, what does Sean really want to say to the world, uh, even if his parents or his family wouldn't approve? I mean, if you had interviewed me even three years ago there was a different version of me wow it's been it's been that dramatic mm -hmm. so did you feel you were curbing yourself for them or how, how did you feel uh i don't i never you know you can't read the label inside the jar right we've heard that before i mean when i was in it i didn't know how much i was holding back my own opinions I didn't know how much I was not fully being myself because I thought that was me. Uh, but then as I got out and not just moved away from home, but then broke away from them in business, I started to see, wow, this is, there's new levels to me. There's new layers to me because I was just sharing what I truly felt. And that's, uh, that's been a journey, you know, I think in our society, we have this mindset, and also in other cultures, big time, even more so, that if I say something that either makes the family look bad or, uh, you know, that my parents wouldn't approve of or, uh, you know, my siblings or whatever, um, then there's something wrong and bad with me if I, if I don't do what the, uh, what the group wants in the family dynamic. And... You're kind of looked as a renegade if you say, hey, you know what? My family doesn't get the ultimate say over my life. I'm going to go pursue this passion or this career, even though it's not what I was groomed to do or what I was educated uh, formally to do. And that's something that I'm hearing more and more. You know, when I finally broke away from my family and business, I was shocked because there was about a year year, year and a half there where we didn't speak. It was pretty um, turbulent. And I was shocked when I would tell people my story and they would say, yeah, oh yeah, I went through a couple of years not talking to my dad or yeah, my, my brother and I haven't spoken in a decade or yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't feel connected to my mom at all. And I was like, wow, because in my mind, everybody was always connected to their family because that's the way I was. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I, I never had quite maybe the dramatic experience it sounds like you had, but I mean, I, I left home when I was 17 years old. And, um, by the time I was in my early twenties, I had moved from Montreal to Toronto. And then in my, not too many, you know, in my early to mid twenties left Toronto for California. And so I, I understand the experience of kind of, uh, letting your sort of wings spread, so to speak. And I certainly relate to, um, I have had moments in my life, Sean, where 
without even realizing it, I realize that I'm curbing my behavior because who I am is not okay with some person in my life who's important mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, yeah. And then did you get into that where it was like you you were trying to make them maybe like you more than they did or, or behave in a way that would endear you more to them? Or, or, or how was it in retrospect? How was it for you? Well, I think it was very unconscious. So let's just address that because I'm not the only one that curbs their their life unconsciously to please others. Uh, it was not like something I sat around thinking like, oh, I hope to get mom and dad's approval on this today. It was very unconscious. But, um, you know, I think a lot of it has to relate to the fact that I wanted them to be proud of me. And that felt so good that in some ways, and, and there's even, if I'm being real here right now, there's even some embarrassment bubbling up in this moment, what I'm about to say, but their feelings, or the feeling I got from them being proud of me was more enjoyable than money, was more enjoyable than so many other attributes that I would curb a lot of my decisions to make sure I got that feeling. Um, and I don't know if this is true to all human beings, but I think it happens a lot with people who are maybe in cultures where the family always stays together from birth to death and they live together and they work together. And when you have that mentality, it feels like treason to say something or do something that doesn't go along with the group. that doesn't agree with the elders. And to, to break away, it, it was difficult. It was challenging. It was painful. And in some ways, I, again, a little embarrassment bubbling up here, uh, you know, I'm 39 years old, but in some ways I'm maybe more like I'm 19 or 20 in some aspects because, you know, I, I'm learning things that people maybe felt when they were in college and they finally got to say and do things on their own for the first time. And, and they failed without anybody watching that would, you know, give them a scolding look. They just failed on their own, you know, <laughs> you could and, just fuck up and have a beer and just go, Oh, it, <laughs> I exactly. up. yeah. I, I had a moment just yesterday and, and this is, this is kind of like the behind the scenes moment. Uh, I've always lived at home with, um, my family or lived with my wife and I have the second house that's just strictly an office house and I came over here to work and I needed to cook a frozen dinner and I had never cooked a frozen dinner everybody else has always helped me and so I had to call up a friend and I'm like okay I can't I don't have a microwave I can reach right now I only have a a toaster oven how how the hell do you cook a uh a microwave dinner in a toaster oven. And then they said something to me that made complete sense after they said it, but no sense to me before the friend said, did you read the box? <laughs> and I'm like, what? She's like, they put directions on the box. I'm like, that's just freaking brilliant. And you know, <laughs> but I had never cooked a uh, frozen dinner all by myself. And you know, there's those little things, uh, you know, I've never driven a car. And that's something that I plan to do. Uh, there's just a lot of little things that I'm still, you know, I, I have this 
decades and decades of education where I help people through their pains and their problems. But in some ways, I'm still learning to walk myself, learning to navigate this world. And, And I'm loving the experience of making mistakes and I'm loving the mystery of, of figuring out and problem solving things that maybe other people did in their early twenties. And how much of that is sort of um, maybe the natural progression of just maturing and gaining life experience. uh, And how much of that is due to some of the physical uh, challenges you have to deal with or, or are they connected in any way or how should I think about sort of where you are in yeah, life? I think there's definitely, a, yeah, there's definitely a connection between the two. I think the physical uh, challenge maybe uh, amplifies it more. Um, and then having that level of independence, uh, you know, I, I love my life because every five years or so I try to, reorganize it in a way that it didn't look like the previous life. And, you know, one of the things that sickens me that I don't want to do in my life that I see a lot of other human beings do is they'll live one life a hundred times. And, you know, if they're they're lucky to live a hundred, right? Right. Um, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to live always in the same place. You know, when I go back home to, Chicago, where I was born and raised, um, I'll go into the local pub uh, that we would go to, you know, in college, in high school, and and I'll see the same kids sometimes, and they've never left the town, and they're still either being a waiter or a waitress or a bartender there, and they're like, oh, Sean, good to see you, and they're still there, and if that works for them, that's awesome, uh, but that wouldn't work for me. I need to see different experiences and I want to live, you know, when the people say, do you believe in past lives? Uh, I like to have many lives in this lifetime. Yeah, that, that's, ex- that's exactly the same for me. I feel, you know, sometimes I feel like, do you ever have this experience where it's almost like your life is so different today than it was from some other point in, in, in your, in your own history that it almost feels like you have somebody else's memories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know I it was you, but it, it, it it was, but it wasn't, right? Yeah, I, I also personally, and this, this doesn't. I'm not touching on like morals or ethics here, but like just personality. I don't. I wouldn't hang out with my younger versions usually. You know, when I look <laughs> at my younger version self, the things that he was interested in or he was doing wouldn't necessarily appeal to me, um, and I'm and I'm loving that, and I and I hope that five or ten years version of me from now wouldn't want to hang out with this guy because he's doing cooler shit and, and on a next level of intelligence and understanding of the world. You know, the, there's a great book called the truth by Neil Strauss. And he talks about how every year you look back in your life, you should have a stack of embarrassing mistakes that you think, how the hell did I do that? Like, what was I thinking? And he gave examples, just, you know, a young child, you know, when you're younger, you can't believe you pooped your pants, you know, when you were a kid. And then, you know, then you can't believe that you 
didn't have control of your bowels. And he gives all these different examples. Then you can't believe that you didn't know how to read. And then, you, you know, and all these different ways. And, and then you can't believe that you drank so much whiskey that you lost control of your bowels again. <laughs> again, in your 20s or 30s or 40s. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there's this, maybe this wrongful belief out there that the version of you should always be the same as you get older. Uh, but I don't agree with that. I I'm constantly breaking the mold and starting over and uh, trying new things and figuring out what do I believe. You know, I'm had a conversation recently with a buddy uh, and I just turned to him and I said, Hey, you know, I want to be honest with you. And he's like, okay. And I said, what you just said there, I, you know, I think that's my, maybe a younger version of me would have thought that was funny, but this version of me didn't think that was funny. That kind of stung and it didn't feel good. And I just needed you to know that because I don't, I don't think that's funny anymore. And he was just teasing me in a way that he thought that I would like, you know, to bond his guys. Yeah. And I said, you know, I see, I said, I think you're basing me off of the guy you met 10 years ago, but this guy is not the same guy. And we evolved our friendship in that moment. And he apologized. And I said, look, it's not that you did anything wrong. It's just, I want to make it clear how I'd like to be treated now and how I like to see the world and the kind of friendship I'd like to have with you. And fortunately the friends I choose are pretty awesome. And so he said, I get it. And we evolved our friendship right in that very moment. Isn't that incredible? And isn't that the hallmark of a great friendship where you can sort of communicate that, yeah, hey, maybe you are different and maybe whatever he was ribbing you about or whatever would have been funny at some point, but for whatever reason you feel differently now. And that A, that you could feel comfortable saying that and that B, it sounds like he was able to modify his behavior and move forward, right? Yeah. And let's be real. I, I didn't feel comfortable saying it, you know, I, but I did it anyway, right? Yeah. Just because... The level of maturity that I have now is I'd rather have an uncomfortable moment where there's clarity than avoid the awkwardness and everybody's not on the same page. Yeah. Now, can I ask you about that? Yeah. So I've known and been friends with and been around people in uh, wheelchairs for pretty much my whole life. And... I worked in a hospital as a young man. My, my mom worked in a hospital for years. And so as a kid, I was an orderly. And so none of that sort of environment, if you will, where people are physically different um, was that surprising to me at a, at a young age. But that said, Dr. Sean, I have noticed that when um, people with more, I don't know even what to call them anymore, typical physical abilities maybe, meet people in wheelchairs or who are somehow physically different than them, that it can be very unnerving for them. It, they can be very uncomfortable. The wheelchair makes them uncomfortable. The, the, the crutches or whatever it is, the physical difference creates a barrier and you can see it in people's face. Now, I met you for the first time when you came rolling into a room full of people and so I saw what happened when you came into that room and at least best I could tell 
nobody had that experience with you. And so my question is, there's something about the way you are with people that when you roll on into the room, you invite people in, people kneel down to come close to you. They're instantly, you have them instantly taking photos with you. I'm not a big selfie guy, but like I immediately found myself wanting a selfie with you and you're like hugging me and our two bald heads are together and stuff. And, and so this is a long question I know, but you make people want to be physically near you to come to you you make them comfortable with the your physical difference and their physical difference how are you so awesome at that thank you for acknowledging that Uh, it's something i consciously work at um i believe the, the way i do it is i take ownership for the space around me uh i take I take ownership for how I treat myself and how I want you to treat me. And so I teach you to treat me with love and respect and playfulness. And I show that just first off in my face, in my energy and how I carry myself, how I speak about myself. You will never, I won't say never because it's a strong word, but you will rarely if ever hear me uh, publicly degrade myself for the comical sake, um, you know, like self-deprecation. I, I put on an energy that this is a man you want to be around. This is somebody who is going to bring value to your life. He's going to get to know you. He's going to make sure that you're being seen and heard as much as you're hearing and seeing him. And, so I think there's a couple ans- uh, answers to your question. Number one is I teach you to treat me that way. I do not believe that you, I don't have this attitude of I demand you, I implore you, I inspire you to want to have fun with me. Uh, I also want to give off a vibration of who are you and how can we hang out and how can we be friends and and I I have this belief that I love all human beings. I may not like all of you, but I love all of you. And I think people feel that is I look for the warmth in people. And in the beginning, that might have caused some challenge because I didn't have understanding of boundaries when I was younger um, to know like, you can love all human beings, but you don't have to go into business with all human beings. You can love all <laughs> human beings, but you don't have to be romantically involved with all human beings, right? Uh, you can have taste and boundaries and all that, preferences. Uh, however, I look for what's amazing in people, and I pull it out of them, and I remind them of what's awesome. I have this thing, and I, I do it more with women because it shows up more than men, uh, um, but when somebody's talking to me and they tear themselves down, even comically, I'll stop them and I'll say, from now on, you don't have my permission to degrade yourself in my presence. If you, I can't control what you do when I'm not around, but in my presence, I request you not do that. Yeah. It's, it's just disrespectful. And I hold a space and a standard for people and I don't know if a lot of people do that. Another thing that I, I have a belief is when I meet somebody and they're freaked out about the wheelchair or my size or anything like that, 
I know that that's a reflection of how they feel if they were me. Like if they had to be me, they think that other people would be uncomfortable. And so it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the reflection of what's going on within them. So I don't take it personally when I see somebody who's all awkward. I take it on as a challenge. I take it on as an uh, educational opportunity to let them know, no, no, you, you, you could have a good time being me. It, it's, it's fun to be me. And just, and I'm, I don't have to say it in words. Sometimes it's just energy. Uh, a perfect example, when I was younger, I would go out to the nightclubs and go dancing. And this, I wheeled up to this one lady and uh, she just wouldn't make eye contact with me. And I was with another female friend. And all of a sudden this altercation broke out where my, my female friend's like, why won't you look at my friend? And then this like awkward explosion happened. And she looked down and she said something to the effect of, he's weird or yuck or some, something degrading, right? And I didn't take it personally because I knew it was a reflection of where she was in her life and how she felt people looked at her and how she felt people would look at her if they looked, if she looked like me. And my friend, my female friend went berserk and she like literally almost put hands on this girl. And I stopped and I said, no, no, stop it. This woman is just a reflection of what's going on in her. Chill out. And like, I, I, I broke him up and I wheeled away with my friend and it was this great educational moment for my friend. And I'm like, look, when somebody treats you in a way that's uncomfortable, or awkward, or demeaning, that's a reflection of them. You don't have to personalize it. You don't have to take that poison on into yourself. So I've done a lot of introspective work. I think that's what shows up. I've done a lot of meditation. I've done a lot of personal growth digging. I journal. So, you know, like I said, I wasn't a huge reader outside of school, but I've, I've been a huge journaler. I'll write three pages a day religiously in my journal, and I'm asking myself questions. Uh, something that might sound a little arrogant, and I'm going to take the risk, but I don't walk past a mirror without winking at myself. It's just <laughs> this thing that I do. I never go past a mirror. Even if I'm by myself in my house, if I go past a mirror, I wink at myself with a little bit of a smile because I feel I deserve that respect. I feel I deserve that love, that connection. And when people, when they have this internal troll that is really mean and their internal dialogue tears them down, I'll pull out a mirror and say, I need you to say that to your face. And they're like, what? I'm like, I don't think, I don't think you'll do it as harshly. I think if you looked at yourself and you acknowledged yourself and you were loving verbally to yourself, it would be awkward at first, but it absorbs over time. You know, I've done a lot, three feet tall in a wheelchair. My insecurities when I was young, they could eat me alive. And that's why I, I fell in love with personal growth and studying human psychology because I needed to navigate this existence in my own Petri dish where I could help anybody else. There's so much awesomeness to unpack there. Um, you know, the, the the first thing, I, I love the winking, and, and uh, you wink at others too, right? Sure. Uh, you, you and I first met, and you winked at me, and I was like, I, I think he just fucking winked at me. <laughs> and so the, so the if we go back to sort of who you are in the room, there's an interesting thing that you do that I don't think most people know you can do, and, and I got taught this early on, primarily in the context of public speaking, but I've learned to use it in life. 
and and that is that you can um, design, create, manufacture, whatever phrases you prefer, your relationship with people or a person or a room full of people before you enter that room, before you meet that person. You, you use the phrase create a space for people, right? So you can sort of decide how you're going to be in a room and, and if you will, pre-configure pre-create the relationship for people to show up in. And I know this can sound to some people like, you know, self-help mumbo jumbo, but it is an interesting thing when you're in your head, you've pre-built a relationship for the people that you're going to meet. And I see it because I've seen you go into that room and I've seen people's initial reaction of being uncomfortable and then it immediately kind of goes poof. And it's not because of what they're doing. It's because of the way you are with people. Yeah, I, especially in on the job speaking, right? You saw me at work. Like we didn't bump into each other uh, out in a, sporting event you saw me at work getting rolling into a room and then getting on a stage and i've done that for 24 years professionally all around the world and i have something that i do uh, that i'm happy to share with you now that that helps set me up to win and set the audience up to win in that experience Uh, i do a lot of mental rehearsal right before I come into the room and the mental rehearsal is not what am I going to say? They're laughing that them having a good time. No, I know that that's going to happen if I do this other thing. And that is, uh, I visualize the pain that everybody's going through. I sit in my shower in the hot water in my hotel room right before I come down to the room. And I, I feel that hot water in my chest and I close my eyes and I just start visualizing and, and I'm making up scenarios of what might be in that audience that statistically I know will be. Um, but I visualize the, the young lady in the back of the room um, who maybe was sexually assaulted by her best friend and she doesn't know if she needs to report it. Uh, I visualize the, the older couple in the back of the room that the wife needs to be put into a home and the husband is scared because he loves her so much and he doesn't want to let her go and he feels like he's failing her because he can't physically take care of her anymore. Uh, I visualize the the young guy who started off his business and he's making a ton of money, but he doesn't, he doesn't know his, his, his family real well because he's put all his time into his business and, and his kids are disconnected from him. I start visualizing all these human experiences that I know exist and I send everybody that I can in this visualization love and let them know that hopefully today you're going to hear something where you're going to be kinder to yourself and I'm going to love you regardless of what you've done and what you've not done. And then I finish out this mental rehearsal by sending myself uh, love up on that stage. So I visualize myself rolling back and forth on that stage and I I visualize this cord of, of energy going from me in the shower to that version of me an hour or two later on that stage and saying, you know what, doesn't matter whether they laugh or not, whether they cry, whether they enjoy you. You're, I just love you for getting up there and having that courage. And I care about you as much as I do them. And that may take as little as two to five minutes or as long as 10 minutes. And then when I come in the room, I've set the stage. 
Yeah. And I've done this activity for nearly 24 years now. And that's why I beam with that empathy. That's why I love on that crowd right away, because I know that it doesn't matter how they react. I'm going to love them the same way regardless. And, and when I saw you, I, I can't remember exactly where, how early it was, but my memory is it was fairly early on in your talk. You're on stage. You're you're physically much more active than I think. Uh, certainly, I would have anticipated, right? So your physicality is extraordinary, and I actually want to ask you about that in a second. But uh, you're also outrageous very quickly in an almost subversive way. You've got you, you sexually sort of provocative things that you say, and you sooner or later you're got your back scratcher out, and you're I don't even you're kind of humping it, and, and like you're being completely outrageous. And so here's this three foot dude in a wheelchair that is that is creating that space that you just described. But at the same time, you're, you know, the, the word my grandmother would have used is she would have said, you know, he's a little naughty, that one. Right. Like you're kind of naughty. Right. And so also maybe share with me where this sort of ability to let yourself really go. And on one hand, say profound things around achieving over you know overachieving overcoming obstacles your 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 learnings as a therapist and everything you've learned with your own life and your own journey and then at the same time you're telling these off-color jokes and you're behaving like a nutcase <laughs> yeah so well let's be clear you saw me speak to that audience um and i gauge and i create uh different experiences depending on who i'm presenting to for sure uh, as audience, do i yeah, that audience, I could take to that place quickly. Um, not every audience, you know, when I go in to speak to, uh, let's say, Dr. Pepper, or Nike, or Whole Foods, or, or you know, even outside of the country, you know, when I speak to um, Electra uh, in Mexico or wherever, when I go in to speak to different crowds, I have to know my audience. Right. So that's the first thing. But what you're referring to is, you know, I don't I'm not a musician uh, naturally. I don't play any musical instrument, but I love music. And I look at it this way. Some of my best speeches, I am willing to use all the notes. I'm willing to use all 88 keys and I'm not afraid. Uh, I don't feel like I have to play within uh, a certain, you know, octave. I don't have to stay in my lane. I can, I can take people from extreme inappropriate to profound and back again. And what I found is when you're able to make an audience cry because you're sharing personal things that they can relate to and, and that evoke their emotions, if you can make an audience cry, you can make an audience laugh. And if you make an audience laugh, you can make an audience cry. And if you can do both, you can then shift the way they look at themselves. And that's why, you know, I think the best speech is, is making sure that you make them laugh, you make them cry, and you make them rethink their life. If you can make them laugh, you can make them cry, and you can make them rethink their life. They won't get out of their seat and finish with a standing ovation because they haven't maybe experienced that extreme of an emotion in such a short period of time and then questioned 
who am I and what am I capable of? If you can spark that in under an hour, uh, a human being will remember your message. Yeah. And, and you are an unforgettable speaker. Thank um, you. you. You truly are. And I, I, when I got home from Best Year Ever Blueprint um, and I was sharing, uh, meeting you with my wife, Carrie, and talking about you and the fun we had and watching your speech and all that. And she was asking me about your talk and I shared with her some of the things that you talked about and so forth and so on. And I had this aha. And it's been something I've been dying to talk with you about ever since. And I don't think about it in any competitive sense. I don't know how to quite say this, but if you sort of think about that event you and I spoke at and the landscape of speakers and, you know, tr tremendous, tremendous speakers on all sorts of different topics, uh, some super well-known, some less well-known, but all very, very powerful. Hal, Hal Elrod himself, jo John Berghoff, who's arguably the best sort of uh, architect of a group experience like that certainly one of the best on the planet so a lot of high-powered people in front of the room and I said to my wife Carrie I said you know here's the interesting thing so Dr. Sean is an undeniable legendary public speaker and there's no question in my mind that if you asked everybody a week after that event who's the speaker they remember the most there's no question who that speaker is it's it's Sean Stevenson. I mean, there's just, it, it would be Sean, Sean, and Sean, and then whoever else would be next, depending on who resonated with wh whatever individual. And, and I don't, I'm, while I do speak professionally, I'm not really a professional speaker in, in the, I think, the way that you are. Um, and I said, and there's nothing anybody who spoke at that event can do that would make that not true. Like I can give the best speech of my life and I'm a pretty good public speaker. And um, in spite of the fact that, you know, you and I share a hairdo and all that, I, I can't get close to you <laughs> in terms of being memorable uh, to an audience. It doesn't matter what I do. And the big aha for me about this, and I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, these comments, Dr. Sean, is I think it would be very easy for most people to look at you or other people in somewhat similar situations to yours and say um, it would be hard to have competitive advantages in, in pick a field. It would be very easy to, to skate to the negative and, and, and hang out there for the much of your life. And the big ahas I was sharing this with Carrie was, isn't it interesting that just in the domain called public speaker, this guy has taken what most people would say is a physical liability and turned it into literally, literally a competitive advantage that because of the fact that I'm not three feet tall in a wheelchair, I can't compete with you as a speaker. <laughs> and it, it, like, there's no greater example to me of taking your different and turning it into an unfair competitive advantage than what you have done with your life. And you even said it in your speech, and I want to get to that in a second, but but I, I just want to take a pause there. And, and I, I got to imagine you've thought about this, but you've taken this thing that most people would call a liability and turned it into an unfair asset. Yeah, I mean, I call my appearance marketing gold and that's why I when I speak to medical professionals when I go into hospitals or 
specialists, I'll get up in front of them and I'll say, I don't have a genetic disability. I have a genetic advantage. I said, because try scrubbing me from your mind. Go home and try to forget me and find that you cannot. I'm like herpes to the soul. And that's... <laughs> that's well, but but you're, you're not itchy. Well, I don't have herpes, <laughs> but <laughs> you don't itch me in that way. <laughs> but you think about me constantly. So here's the thing. I knew at a young age... Probably, uh, let's see, started in 1994. In about 1994, I'm 49 now, so in my early teens, I knew that I was going to have challenges in the traditional workforce because I I tried to get a, a summer job, right, to make a little extra money. I knew I couldn't be a paper boy. Uh, I knew that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable me babysitting their kids, uh, you know, because I couldn't scoop them up in a fire and take them out of the house. Right. Uh, there were a lot of things that I was going to challenge. And then so then I went out to try to find a job in the summer and I found jobs that I could physically do that I was getting discriminated against because they had preconceived notions. And this is the early 90s. And the Americans with Disabilities Act had just passed, but it wasn't really fully uh, implemented. And I, I applied to work at a, uh, a consumer electronic uh, consumer electronics uh, store selling stereos. They turned me down. I tried to get a job uh, being a uh, phone person at a, a chiropractic office, just taking reservations. I tried to be a, a dispatcher at a limousine company, all things I could have physically done. But every single time in the interview, they said, you're great. We love you. Uh, we love your personality. But what if we need you to go run an errand, get coffee? What if we need you to get something up high? Like just blatant discrimination. And I just got so discouraged. But thank God that I had a wonderful guidance counselor who said, hey, I have an idea. What if I paid you $75 to speak to this other school about what it's like to have a disability? Would you do it? And I'm like, $75 for one hour? I mean, in the early 90s, uh, that would buy you a lot of stuff, right? That's I felt like I was a multimillionaire, right? And I said, sure, I'll do it. And I get up there, and I noticed that there was some huge advantage that I had. And that wasn't just that I looked different. It's that I was comfortable with people looking at me. I had had eyes on me my whole life. And now I was finally getting paid for it. And I thought, this is nice. If people are staring at me for money, I could do this. And that's when I started to decide that I was going to look at speaking like a sport. You know, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I look at speaking as a sport and I I studied the craft. I, I spent time personally with Les Brown and Tony Robbins and Wayne Dyer and Byron Katie and some of the greats in public speaking and personal growth. And I spent time with them physically and, ma and matched what they were doing and learned what they learned, became a trainer of NLP. I, I became a doctor of clinical hypnosis. I got all this background to study how to take people on an emotional roller coaster, how to use my body, how to take them and use all 88 keys with them. And my mentality was always, when I get on that stage, 
I'm going to be the best speaker that not only this conference has, but these audience members have ever heard. And I, I take that competition still today. So even though I do that empathy training, I also take that aggressiveness. You know, I watch, I watch a lot of basketball and I, you know, I, I love those players that play angry, you know, and like, like a Russell Westbrook that just is explosive and every play is going after it. And I feel that way when I take the stage. If I don't do an A plus speech, if I get off that stage and I was an A minus, maybe even an A that day, I, I go to work. I, I, I get the film. I record almost all my speeches and then I take, you know, in-depth notes on what could I have done that would have been funnier, more heartfelt, more amazing. And so, yes, I do think my appearance gives me a competitive advantage, but also I went aggressively all into this. You know, uh, there's a lot of hats that I wear, but I want to go down as one of the greatest keynote speakers to have ever lived. And that level of, of determination I've taken on for the last 24 years. Well, and you're certainly there. And look, I, I having given a couple speeches in my life, I know that you don't get to that level without practice. I, I know that a lot of people say, to you, oh, you're such a gifted speaker and you have all this talent. I know people say those things to you and I know they mean them as compliments and you definitely have some natural... Um, I don't know what the fuck talent really means, but there's a natural uh, whatever. Yeah, there's something that is is drawn you to that for reasons that are obvious when you do it. However, I also know you didn't show up that way on your first speech, did you? No, no, not at all. And that's the thing: if if you aren't willing to record yourself and then look at your mistakes, you're never going to get great at anything. You know, because what you track improves it just always does you want to get better at eating healthier foods just write down all the shit that you eat every day because at some point you're gonna finally hit that moment where you're not gonna want to write down that you had another oreo you're gonna be like something's got to change here and as long as you can delete as long as you won't look at the stats You'll just continue to perpetuate a, a negative experience. But if you're willing to have the courage to look at the stats, if you're willing to look at the mistakes you make, if you're willing to look at what's going on in the dollars and cents of your business, when you're willing to look at it, it will get better over time because you will have that irritation as explosive fuel to make you better. You know, I have another friend who is a very successful business person, but he sucks as a speaker. And I know why. It's because he won't look at his own tapes. I'll say to him, why won't you look at him? You're like, I, I don't need to. I, I'm a successful businessman. I'm like, yeah, but you suck as a speaker. People leave your audience. How much more of an impact could you make if you put some effort into the craft of speaking? You know, the greatest leaders of all time that we think of were unusually amazing orators. And when you have the craft over the, the language and the way in which you influence people with your voice and your body, it makes a massive impact. What if you just put a little bit of effort, but you didn't want it? And that's okay. However, that's a choice. Everything that we have that's amazing is because we were willing to take the choices that in the beginning were uncomfortable. Yes. And, you know, and as a side note, um, I really think if you're an executive or you're an entrepreneur or you're a leader of any kind, 
you have to have your ass trained in public speaking. I believe so. Because if you're going to be a leader of any more than a few people, then you're going to have to stand up in front of those people and you're going to have to say something that moves them to action and a particular kind of action to produce a particular kind of outcome because leaders ultimately get paid to move people to action that produces outcomes that are powerful and meaningful and make a difference, right? Even in being a parent, even having children or, you know, when you're leading a small team of employees, whatever it may be, you are speaking like everybody's public speaking, period. If you're out in front of another human being, it's public speaking. It's just what size crowd do you call a speech? What size crowd do you think is public speaking? For me, my heart doesn't race until we're getting to a football stadium. If there, there has to be a good 100,000 people in the audience for my heart to race and think, oh, shit, this is new territory. You know, <laughs> I, I remember the first time I did my first basketball stadium with like 25,000 people. That, that made my heart race the first time I did it, but I loved it, the adrenaline rush of it. But for some people, that's 10 people. That's a hundred people and everybody has their number, but we all have a number. Yeah, very much. Now I want to go back to, you were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, trying to get jobs and some jobs you couldn't do, but some jobs you could do, but the people blatantly discriminated against you. And I think at a high level, there's sort of two options for people in life. There are people who, if you will, find their place in the world. And then there are people who, for whatever reason, can't find their place in the world um, or the world won't welcome them to a place, however you want to think about it. And they have to make their place in the world. And I think in general, the context of our life is, you know, if you think about school as an example, the, the context is, hey, we're here to provide you an environment for you to figure out where your place is and whether that's I try pickles and I like them or in my case hate them so I'm not a pickle person and then I like this and I don't like that and I can't do math but I can do these other things. We're always sort of testing things. Is this me? Is this not me? Do I fit here? Don't I fit here? As as a paradigm in life but very rarely do we get does it get explained to us particularly when we're younger like hey um, as you're doing all that um, you may actually land in a spot where you, you discover there's really no good perfect no good place for you to be successful you're sort of going to have to make your own and yeah, so you're uh, for your I, own trail yes yeah, so i'm curious you know dr sean how you think about this this finding versus making your place as as some, my interpretation is you very much had to make a place for yourself yeah i mean even when i became a speaker i told you i was paid 75 dollars to talk about what it's like to have a disability but i grew bored of that quickly I only did maybe, I've only done in my entire 24 year career, hundreds of speeches, probably over a thousand speeches now, five where I talk specifically about having a disability and then nothing else. And those were the first five because at some point I was like, there's more to me. My disability is about 5% of who I am. It may be 95% of what I look like, but it's only 5% of how I identify with myself. And I had to then break away because I also noticed when I just got seen as a disabled speaker, there was only a certain fee or a budget that I would ever have accessible to me. 
And I was like, fuck this. I want to be a corporate speaker. I want to get, you know, the 10, 20, 30, $40,000 keynotes. And just talking about what it's like to have a disability, that was getting me the $500 speeches. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that if that's what juices you and that's what you feel called to do. But for me, I wanted growth. I wanted explosive growth. So I had to carve my way into that field. And, you know, there was little things that I've had to do over my career to make sure that I wouldn't get pigeonholed as a disabled speaker. I had to make sure that I wasn't on the cover of my books so that I wouldn't get passed over um, when people were buying books out there that didn't know who I was because they're like, oh, this is a book about the disabled. No, take me off the cover. I want you to find out later that I have a disability. Uh, you know, making sure that I, I pushed into conferences and got in front of people and wowed them the first time where they forgot about my disability. You know, I had to both find it and forge it at the same time as well as accept and see what was coming to me. Because for me, I saw that in the field of speaking, my appearance put me head and shoulders over other people when you're looking through a stack of brochures of speaking. But also I had to make sure that I didn't just rest on my appearance. I had to massively increase the talent. So you know, every single person alive, there's gonna be things that are gonna come to you that are going to be natural, that you're going to go into, and you're going to do well right away. And then there's some things that you're going to have to, you're going to have to get the rubber mallet out and you know bang it around until you get it to to fit in, and that's okay. You know, my my family. One of the things that I credit them for is they taught me to rule with a velvet hammer. You know, don't be so militant that nobody wants to hang out with you, but also make sure that you let people know you have some weight behind you and you're not going to be messed with. And you know, when you're when you're finding your place in this world, there's going to be times where people are going to be like, nope, we don't allow your sexual orientation in here. Nope, we don't like your gender. Nope, we don't like your age. We don't like your color, your skin, or your appearance, this, that, and the other. And you're going to have to hold your ground and say, you know what, I get that it makes you uncomfortable because you've never spent time with somebody, but become friends with me and then tell me I can't do this. Get to know me as a person first. And so there's going to be times that you're going to have to push your way into something. Maybe you'll be the very first person. I remember in my early 20s, I was looking for mentors on love. And I wanted to find somebody who could confidently tell me that if they, if I followed their system, I would find a healthy relationship, that I would get into a loving, sexual, emotional, deep, connected, soulful match. But I couldn't find anybody that was out there teaching people with disabilities how to find love because we have different challenges that we experience. And I finally did find a mentor. He didn't teach me how to do it. He taught me that if there's not a person on this planet that you can find as a role model, that means it needs to be you. And I went for a few years and I taught people with disabilities, how do you find love? And then, of course, I got bored of that. And I started teaching all men, how do you find love? How do you find healthy relationships? And, you know, there's been times in my life where I needed to be the mentor that I was desperately seeking. Hmm. I want to make sure I heard exactly what you said. If there isn't a role model for something you want to learn in life, then it's you. Did I hear that right? Absolutely. And so um, if I was a disabled person 
looking for everything you just described, a true, a true partner, a 360 degree partner, physical, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, sexual, the whole thing. Um, what, what advice would you have for me? Uh, I've, I've later learned that it's the same advice I'd give any guy, not just a guy with a disability. Uh, but to specifically target on that, since that's your question, is I would say two things. One, be very clear on what you, what are your deal breakers? What are important for you that, that need to appear? And make sure that you never bend on your deal breakers. And that's in their selection process. And then the second in the attraction process is who do you need to become that would attract that kind of person? Do you need to be more confident? Do you need to have a better self-image? Do you need to uh, be more financially stable? Do you need to be more playful or do you need to back it down and not be the as much of a clown you need to mature a little bit what where what shoes do you need to grow into that the person you're looking for would be attracted to and that was the big changer for me is i found that you had i had to make peace with never finding the love of my life but also never stop looking and that's when i found her is i i was on the mission i was on my path I kissed a lot of frogs, but then I finally met my princess and it turned into this amazing love affair that has been going on for nine years, happily married. And, you know, there's nobody best suited for Sean Stevenson than Mindy Kniss. <laughs> you know, and the interesting thing, I got to ask you about this because I think uh, it's good advice for all guys. Chicks really dig you, man. <laughs> no, they you. do. Like, yeah, well, that's not an accident. <laughs> There's well, two things that I do that make me attractive. One is confident, and two is a sense of humor. Because when you're confident without being arrogant, you you let a woman know unconsciously that you have her back because you have your own. That's first of all. Second is a sense of humor that, look, Women, especially now that we see it in our society, there's a lot of pressure on them, a lot of challenges, stereotypes, all these different things that they're facing. They have all the stress in their body. If they can come across a guy that can make them giggle, if they can come across a girl that can make them giggle, if they can come across somebody that can relieve that tension with laughter, they'll spend more time with that person and they'll be drawn to that person. So you mix that that sense of confidence with that sense of humor, and you have something that's very appealing. I mean, I got on the uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live show about 10 years ago, I had a, a, a men's product teaching men about confidence and dating and improving their sexual relationships and all that. And Jimmy Kimmel said, how do you do this? And I said, because let's be clear, Jimmy, women don't want a tall, dark, and handsome man. They want the feelings they think they'll get from being with a tall, dark, and handsome man. If you can help that pull out those feelings in that woman, she'll have no choice but to fall for you. You just need to know how to strike those feelings. That's incredibly powerful. And, and yeah, regardless of, uh, I think a lot of men need to understand that. It's like, it reminds me a little bit of, a, uh, I, I always go back to this one in my head. Remember the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Sure. There's that scene in the movie where he's talking, I forget his buddy's name in the movie, but he's talking to Pedro. his 
Pedro, duh, of course, vote for Pedro. Um, I drink too much. Um, but there's, so, so there's a scene where he and Pedro are in the hallway at school, and, and, and he says to Pedro, he goes, we, we need to get some skills. W- women want guys with skills. <laughs> Nunchucks. <laughs> something. Exactly. Nunchuck skills. Some skills. Something. Right. And I, I look at some of these younger guys and they're like not doing very well. And it's like, OK, well, t- to your point, Sean, you know, are you the kind of guy that the kind of woman that you're interested in would be interested in? Well, and it's if- even more than skills. I think there's something above that. And that is, do you have a purpose for your life that you're pursuing? OK, I so think let, that, let, let's that get is the let- sexiest thing on the planet. Let's get into that. Why do you think purpose is so sexy? Uh, because then you're not wandering and floundering and just drifting. Uh, you're, you're, you have a goal and you're headed toward it. And it's not even a goal. It's an aim because uh, you'll, you'll be heading towards it for the rest of your life. Uh, as long as you're alive, you're on that purpose. And I think it's sexy because it's, it's bigger than just your own selfish desires. You're doing something that's greater than you. You know, one of the reasons why I love Mindy so much is she knows that my life purpose is more important than our marriage. And that's what makes our marriage so strong. Hold on, slow, my slow life, on your handsome. Say that again for me. Yeah, yeah. My life purpose is more important than our marriage. And my life purpose is to rid this world of insecurity. And if I'm pursuing that, our marriage is strong and powerful. The moment I start to put my marriage and like, oh, you know, just serving you is more important than my mission, we collapse. Hmm. And why is that your purpose? It's something that came to me in a, uh, a deep revelation. It's something that when I shared it, because I had a mentor that pulled it out of me uh, and the mentor and I, I've got about 21 different mentors in my life and different areas. And this one mentor was specifically chosen to help me find my purpose. And I felt called to have this mentor in my life for that. And when it was clear that my purpose was to rid this world of insecurity, he said he could feel the hairs in the back of his head, you know, the back of his neck stand up. And he said, Sean, if there was anybody on this planet, that the world would listen to about you don't have to be insecure. It would be you. And now you need to go pursue that for the rest of your life. And when he said that, I checked in with my own intuition just to make sure it wasn't just my mentor's opinion, but that it was in alignment with my own intuition and it clicked and I agreed and it felt right and true and has every day since. And it's in my bones. I feel it. You know, when I, when I want to quit, all I got to do is spend just a little time with my purpose. Just reminding myself, what, why were you born again? What are you yeah. here to do? And yeah. it will it will dust me off and pick me up every single time, get me out of bed. It doesn't matter how many screw-ups, how many things I might invest in financially that don't work or time-wise that, that fail or a, a partnership that didn't pan out. It doesn't matter. The, the trials and tribulations of Sean Stevenson are secondary to me the primary is are you on this path are you pursuing that purpose to show this world we do not need to be insecure because i have a vision in my mind that three generations from now kids are going to ask their you know their 
parents and their grandparents and their great grandparents. Is it true that people used to kill themselves because they, they like there's this thing called suicide? Is that did that really happen? Do people really need to go on antidepressants, Grandpa? Like I see a world where we don't make that the commonplace. I see a world where that is abolished. You know, there's some things we're not going to get rid of, but but there are things that we can get rid of from the human race. And I think insecurity is something that genetically doesn't need to stick around anymore. That's awesome. What advice would you give others who are trying to find, you know, they're different, trying to find their purpose and, and ground themselves the way you've grounded yourself? Yeah. Get mentors. Uh, I would tell them, um, can I, can I shamelessly plug something? You can do whatever you want, man. This is you hanging out. <laughs> I love it. So I would tell them to uh, go to theunstoppableformula.com. That's theunstoppableformula.com. Uh, I teach a course that you can get for free there. And it it builds far more than I can do in this uh, conversation here on the top three things that you need to do to get unstoppable. And one of them is to find your purpose. And I go deep into the things that you're going to need to do to, to create that. Uh, but ultimately you need to be pursuing something that lights you up, that you're willing to work on every day and not grow tired of, you know, I don't grow tired of speaking. I might grow tired of getting speeches. I might grow tired of audiences. I might grow tired of a lot of things, but I don't get tired of speaking. The craft is something that I, I know what I'm capable of and I know I haven't, scrape the surface yet i know that i have a lot more work to do you know i love the like i said the sport of basketball and uh they asked kobe bryant once do you think your fans are too hard on you and he said absolutely not i only have five championship rings but i feel like i should have had a ring for every year i was in the league that's the kind of level of standard I held myself to. And I, I resonate with that. You know, the people look at my career, they look at what I've done. And if I'm being real and I'm ripping my chest open for people to know what's really going on on the inside, I would say, I don't feel like I've done anywhere near what I could have done by now. And that's why I'm glad I'm still here because I got more time. If, if you're still alive, it lets me know your purpose is not complete. When you die, your purpose will be fulfilled. It'll have been fulfilled. You know, I love what the great Deepak Chopra said. He says, you know, when I die, I will know I have done what I needed to come here to do. And that was enough. And I, I resonate with that. When my eyes open up in the morning, I'm a little different than most. I've been close to death a couple, couple times in my life. I've had a lot of physical pain. I've gone through a lot of physical challenges. I'm amazed when my eyes open up. I'm like, holy shit, I guess you got more. I guess that God's not done with you yet, and that's okay. I get excited. I pop out of my bed, and I get the day going. And, you know, not every single day, but I'd say most days, because of the way I set up my life, I am willing to pursue this purpose. And, and you need to be different. You need to be able to find what lights you up and what is something that you can get paid to do that's in that realm how can you do that? How can you find a vocation that, that really is paying you to do what lights you up? I love speaking so much. There's a certain number of speeches I do a year where I'm not even paid. 
because I know that when I get up on that stage, it is going to be so damn fun. And I'm going to have worked on my craft and prepared something for them that I wanted to do for free. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, Dr. Sean, I want to be super respectful of your time. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we kick out of this one? I would just tell you, especially speaking to the men here, because this is a little foreign, really work on taking better care of yourself. Uh, put together a list of the things that you need to be doing to, to care better for yourself and the women there as well. But, you know, I find that uh, men think that self-care is a little bit more of a feminine thing. I'm not going to go get a massage. I'm not going to go do this. I'm not... No, you need to take great care of yourself and you need to learn how to love yourself and, you know, wink when you go past the mirror because that level of self-love is going to, it's going to take you to places and it's going to put light where there's darkness and it's going to, it's going to show in your eyes when you put that level of dedication into loving yourself. Well, thank you, Dr. Sean. You're awesome. It has been great getting to know you. Absolutely. Happily. Thank you. I love you too, Sean. Absolutely. Love you, man. Thank you. And there he is, the three-foot giant, Dr. Sean Stevenson, sharing his truly legendary life with us and his amazing wife, Mindy Kniss. Bless you both and your family. And um, thank, you for, uh, thank you for tuning in for this uh, very special repeat episode and investing part of your life with us. And until we're together again, follow your different.